Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, and I feel like I am coming out of a bit of winter hibernation, at least for now. I have today a podcast uh, that was a panel that I recorded at the Old Salt Festival in Montana, in Helmville, which was an incredibly magical experience that happened at the end of June. And it was an opportunity where I got to connect with a lot of people that I have known on the internet for many years, some over a decade, and get a chance to meet them in real life, a chance to connect with some of the guests that I've had here on this podcast including Caroline Nelson of the Choose Wisely podcast, Kate Havstad of Cassid Family Farms and Range Revolution, and just so many other beautiful individuals. And it was a chance to really get to talk about farming and ranching and the butcher and processor and distributor industry. And I sat on this panel, and when Ed asked me what I wanted to talk about, I told him that I wanted to be very forthright about where I am in business at this time. And as I create this intro for this episode, I want to give a little bit of an update of where things are that might also answer a little bit about where I've been and why I've been absent from social media and the podcast has been coming a little bit in fits and spurts, which I'm hoping I'm well on the way to getting that back up and going pretty much weekly. I'm sure there will be blips here and there. Back in March, so to give you all a little background for those of you that might know, I opened up Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver, Colorado, which is a whole animal butcher shop that sources from local farms and ranches across the plains that have regenerative practices. We do 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pasture-raised pork and chicken, and have been at it for over a decade now. And throughout that decade, I have watched our food industry change rather dramatically. Uh, You know, as I've kind of worked to piece together my story, I kind of think of what happened when I started eating meat again at the age of 20, almost 15 years ago, as being very recently post-omnivore's dilemma, uh, which is Michael Pollan's sort of seminal work that I think actually has a lot of issues, but it definitely set off a change 
chain of events that elevated the farmer's market industry and a lot of restaurants as well as I think that sort of celebrity chef culture that was rising at the time. And I think, you know, that was 2008-ish. And I think 15 years later, our food system is in a very different place. And traversing over a decade of business really tied into local food, local supply chains, and into agriculture, which when I started the butcher shop was really talked about as holistic land management and is now deemed regenerative agriculture and the sort of evolution of even the language with which we speak about some of these things has shifted. And two have also shifted people's interests. You know, in the last decade, we've seen the rise of delivered to your doorstep convenience that has been brought to us by brands like Butcher Box and now White Oak Pastures and Force of Nature Meats. I think that we have seen the dilution of the market through both greenwashing and a genuine uptick in the raising of some of these more regenerative meats that you can now purchase grass-fed beef at Costco, where it used to be that you really had to go direct to a farmer or to find one of these more niche butcher shops. We're also seeing a massive rise in inflation and over the last decade of Western Daughters, there have been a lot of moments where we were really hanging on by the skin of our teeth. It is a low margins business. It's important to remember that across the farming and ranching community, margins sit at about 2.4% across the board, which is really just one disaster away from bankruptcy for most farmers and ranchers. And I think that there are a lot of a lot of confounding factors for why that's the case. And one of the things I've noticed at least internally within people that discuss the food system is we have this sort of triangle and I define this triangle as we have producers. These are going to be the farmers and ranchers that raise and grow our food. We have consumers and then we have third parties and I describe third parties as distributors, slaughterhouses and middlemen like butcher shops that are serving as a go between between producer and consumer. And I think we Within that triangle, you see a lot of finger pointing. And when we're talking about margins, when we're talking about really difficult businesses, farmers and ranchers point at the consumer and say, well, the consumer isn't willing to spend more money. They don't value their food. The consumer is talking about how farmers and ranchers are price gouging and their food is incredibly inaccessible. And farmers and ranchers are also pointing at slaughterhouses that here is, you know, this link and they're not doing a good job or they cost too much money. Slaughterhouses are pointing at farmers for being difficult, all of these different sort of inner workings. And I think that in many ways, we've taken a page out of the books of corporations to point a finger and to say the onus lies with so-and-so. Uh, so often that is the consumer, but I think for the case of the consumer, it's pointing back at the farmer or rancher, which we also see sort of parroted to us through the headlines that farmers and ranchers are at 
fault for greenhouse gas emissions and environmental destruction and all of these things that we have thoroughly debunked on this podcast. I want to offer something that I think is a little bit difficult, which is the struggles that this industry is currently experiencing, which I'm going to get into a little bit more here in a second, are no one's fault. Uh, I think that there are a lot of complex historical, political, uh, I mean, even geographical, environmental factors that have gotten us to the place that we are. And my hope is that we've really looked at these on the podcast and will continue to look at them. Having said that, we arrive at this place where consumers cannot afford better meat. Uh, They have rising costs of living, whether we're talking about the cost of rent or the cost of housing in general, gas, basic services, and they have increasingly little time to spend cooking. And I know it's really easy to say, well, we could take out this piece and then you you could add all of this value, all of this nutrient density, but I think at the end of the day, there is something in all of us that is deeply tired and sometimes doesn't have the bandwidth to cook food or to source food well or doesn't have access to the incredible amount of research you all know goes into making some of these choices. Um, And so, you know, on the consumer side, you have that. On the farmer and rancher side, you also have increasing costs. You have the increasing costs of land, the financialization of farmland, uh, rising costs of any feed, uh, rising costs of gasoline that change the way tractors are made, the rising cost of hay in drought conditions, which is an incredibly complex contributor to the price of meat across the United States, where in the West we have drought and in the East we have increasingly fewer three-day windows in which to cut hay, making hay rare in both cases, and and most animals in this country are fed hay for a decent amount of the year. And this is contributing to the rising costs of meat that, you know, whether it's the cost of a tractor wheel or the fuel that you put in a tractor or the hay or the land or the extra labor, that farmers have rising costs and they're still working on those incredibly slim 2.4% margins. You know, and the third parties, you are seeing the same thing, that there is a rising cost of labor, rightfully so, and rising cost of fuel if you're a distributor of rent, if you have a brick and mortar in the city of even just paper goods to package things like broth and meat. And all of these are contributing to what I think is an increasingly fragile system that is beginning to show some rather deep fractures. And I think that as we experience increasing inflation, we are going to see some canaries in the coal mine that are really not doing well. And I think in many ways, one of those canaries is the butcher shop in Denver, is Western Daughters. And... Over 
the last year, it's been incredibly clear to me that a decision needed to be made about whether or not we were going to stay open. And Josh and I have had a lot of conversations about what that means and decided that we were going to make a decision by March of next year about whether or not we were going to stay open. We had taken on some personal debt that was borderline predatory, and I felt like something had to give. And unfortunately, that thing seems to be giving a little bit sooner than I anticipated. And so... Josh is going to spend an extended unknown amount of time uh, trying to figure out if this is something that is going to continue to work. And what I'll say is that, you know, at the butcher shop over the last decade, one of our biggest points of pride was that 50 plus cents of every dollar that you spend at Western Daughters goes back to a local farmer or rancher, which over the last 10 years has equated to over $6 million that has gone back into local farmers and ranchers uh, across the front range in Colorado. And that 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 financial success of paying farmers that much money has also meant that we are building soil organic matter through regenerative practices, that we are restoring the native grasslands ability to sequester carbon, that we are enriching rural economies. But the fact of the matter is also that we're still not paying enough, even though that's how much we pay. And you would contrast that with eight cents of every dollar that you spend, maybe, that's going back to a farmer or rancher when you shop at any old grocery store. And so 50 cents still isn't really enough and we pay more than almost anybody. And at the same time, we're spending 25 to 30 cents on labor. And it's still not enough to pay the incredible people that work at Western Daughters a living wage in a city that is increasingly expensive. And that leaves us with 20 to 25 cents left over to pay rent, trash, dry goods, all of this stuff, all while we ourselves were not taking any sort of paycheck. And that issue has sort of come to a head and some decisions need to get made. And I don't actually know whether we will sell or close our doors or find a way to make it successful in a way that it can just sustain itself, which is truly all that we want for the butcher shop is for it to sustain itself, the farmers and ranchers that have grown to depend on it, and our incredible team that also depends on it. And I think that in grappling with some of these big decisions and these big pieces of my life, I, I kind of fell off the podcasting wagon. As I've begun to tell this story to more and more people, people have this response that is almost as if somebody has died when you talk about closing your business. And this has kind of bothered me because I think for the most part, anytime you open a business, you think about what it would mean to close it, to sell it, to have some sort of exit strategy or to, you know, what it would mean to support it in, you know, supposedly perpetuity and to maybe reach a plateau, to have a business that isn't about growth, but is about symbiotic support within an environment, which I think Western Daughters really has served as. But I think with that, 
I've had this reaction that I don't want people to take pity on us for what we're experiencing right now in these really difficult moments of of what it means to to continue this and I want to steer people instead to I think what has been a little bit of grief on my part for what this means as for the food system as a whole I think that there are many smaller food businesses, butcher shops, farms, and ranches that are experiencing financial difficulty during this time that are harbingers of what may come in the future. And I think it has, for me, created a deep sense of urgency around explaining some of these fractures within our food system at a historical level, at an ecosystem level, at a philosophical level to really help us understand how we got here and what we might change going forward that can provide financial sustainability within a system that is looking for environmental sustainability and what I hope is increasingly a sense of human sustainability, that we are taking care of the humans that raise and grow and pick and tend and sell our food as well as the consumers who are benefited by that nutrient density and having something where there is a rising tide that is lifting all ships instead of what I feel is just a force that is dividing and depleting and... I think in that I've just had a little bit of, you know, honest despair that, oh, I, I can't quite figure out what it would take for that butcher shop to work. And I can't quite figure out what it would take for our food system to work. And that hurts. And I haven't known how to broach this topic either on the podcast and it's just kind of taken up a lot of my brain space and it's part of why I've been a little bit more absent here and also trying to figure out because this has changed the trajectory of my life in more ways than I can count and has really made me feel attuned to uh, the way that life can change on a dime and our our mission within it can shift and i think that the underlying factors that i've wanted to explore on this podcast have shifted with it that i want to explain so much more about complexity about process about the underpinnings of everything and where some of these systems got put into place that suddenly that has become crucial to me that we, and this is, this is going to be a terrible analogy, that we sort of peek under the hood of these machinations of industry. And I mean that at the level of corporations, at the level of social mores and society and sort of boundaries of culture and the way that we've been inculcated in this cultural milieu that informs the way that we consider every aspect of our lives and at the same time to explore 
some of the drivers of what I would refer to as late stage capitalism that has put each of these shareholders in such a tight space and really valued the divisiveness, the finger pointing, the competition over the idea of collaboration and symbiosis that we might see modeled to us in so many aspects of our environment and of our ecosystems and how we can maybe find a sense of healing within that because I do not think that we heal in the isolation that is perpetuated by the corporate organism and by our institutions today, but to heal in connection, in community, in collaboration for for a better a better sense of connection for all of us. And this has taken me down a lot of different rabbit holes of reading and talking to various people. And I think I hoped in some ways that I will have sorted this all out in my head. And I'm recognizing now that as somebody who needs conversation, who needs to work out my thoughts in real time in a process that I often refer to as circling the drain, that I need to explore these big spirals of connection that don't always seem to share the same core until they get closer and closer into that central tenet, that central anchor, and that a big part of my process is indeed the podcast and I don't want to lose that connectivity but it's just felt it's felt hard to make collateral and it's felt hard to produce this entire thing which I produce all myself I make all of the collateral I do all of the all of the promotion and the marketing and it was just a time of grief right and and I, I think that we all experience this and a time of shifting my trajectory here and exploring what that might mean and exploring how to talk about this, especially because there is such a visceral reaction from people when I tell them that I'm not sure that the business is going to survive. And within that, I want to say we have this metric of success that is predicated on financial success. But that little butcher shop has been successful in so many different ways. And when I think about the soil organic matter that we've built, the rural economies that we've built, the families that have been nourished by people spending their hard-earned dollars at Western Daughters, when I think about the food that has nourished the families that come through the doors at Western Daughters, and to see that nourishment spread across people that I knew when they were single and into their marriages and into having children and gotten to feed those children at their second birthday parties and to see the fruits of the land made into this beautiful web of community and connection. I don't think that there is a better definition of success out there than the nutrients that have flown that have passed through land, through animal, through communities, through economies, through bodies, through all of these different spaces 
in the last 10 years. I find it staggering and really beautiful and touching. And so I want to remind people out there that we so often couch success in economic, financial productivity, but I know that this business has been wildly successful in every way that I hold dear as a value and that it just hasn't found this aspect of financial sustainability, not even success or wild profitability, but sustainability that it needs in order to continue to sustain this beautiful network. And and hopefully it finds that. But if it doesn't, I hope that this is an impetus for me and for others to explore some of the pitfalls of this interconnected food system that are in desperate need of exploring. And I, I don't want you to walk away with a sense of pity from listening to this intro. I want you to walk away with a renewed sense of curiosity about the underpinnings of everything that moves goods from originally lands into our homes and whether that is a piece of meat or a piece of clothing or the electronics that you're listening to this on I just want us to better understand process to be a little bit more curious and a little bit more connected you know maybe this inspires you to reach out to a local farmer or rancher and see If you could either purchase some meat from them or just give them a hand on the farm one day or just shake their hand and meet them. And and that's really what I want uh, for the listeners of this podcast is to find this sense of connection and this sense of curiosity for the complexity that surrounds us every single day. And I hope that also gives you a little bit of framework for where I've been. I've been a little stuck, a little in a process of grief, a little bit in a process of transformation and change. And in that, haven't felt very much like showing up on social media, haven't felt like making uh, the collateral for the podcast that I know helps people find it and I do want to help people find it. And trying to figure out what threads we're going to explore next that will help me elucidate some of these processes for myself and also for you. And I hope that in some of these iterations of the podcast, we're going to go some wild places. And I hope that you'll go on this journey with me because it's such a pleasure to be here with you. This is to me so much about connection and it is this connection between you, listener, and me, podcaster, and my guests that keeps this in the space where I really want to continue to grow it. And that is my intention going forward is to grow this podcast. So if you are loving it, the best thing that you can do is leave a written review on Apple Podcasts 
or leave a rating and definitely hit subscribe. Share with friends and family members. This is a podcast produced by me, uh, researched by me, and your support means everything. There are ways to financially support the podcast in the show notes if that is something that you have the bandwidth to do at this time and the interest to do too. And I'm hoping that we're going to get back into some more deep dives coming up here. I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had in Montana amongst some of these shareholders about the state of local food regions and distribution. I was just, and I I, want to say this, I was just blown away by what the Mannix family has created in terms of their, their connectivity within their intergenerational ranch out in Helmsville, Montana, and getting to see the, the beautiful landscape and this incredible festival they put on with Old Salt. And I'm hoping that it will return next year and that I might be invited back to continue to create some of these connections. And one of my big takeaways in this is that we all need to be connecting both over information like was shared within the space of this panel, but that we also really need to be connecting in joy to listen to music together, to dance together, to hug one another, to connect over a fire, to touch each other's wares. You know, there was a great marketplace where there were, you know, beautiful clothing from Revival and jewelry from the Noisy Plume from Jillian and incredible bags from Kate at Range Revolution and just getting to see what people that are cultivating these connections with the land are creating from that space and yeah, to just be in community with one another. What a spectacular thing. We need more joy as we connect and not just to be about information, not just to be about talking, but to be about gathering and finding a sense of aliveness together. So whatever you are doing with your week, I hope that it has a great sense of aliveness and that you go forth and live that aliveness because I really believe in the sort of vein of Andreas Weber that aliveness begets more aliveness and that is what we need in this world that sometimes feels so hard to find our way in. So thank you for listening to my rant and I'm so excited to he- for you to hear this awesome panel that Ed Robertson of the Mountain and Prairie podcast, which is all of our benchmark for just what it is to have some really incredible conversations. Uh, I'm really excited for you to hear this. So without further ado, I'm going to dive in and thank you again for everything. I want to take a break and talk about our most recent and incredible sponsor of this podcast, Sundry's Farm. Sundry's Farm is producing seed and culinary garlic that is grown in the Hagerman Valley in 
Idaho by Rob Cropful and Jillian Lukuski. I just did an amazing podcast with Rob talking about all things garlic as well as overcoming challenges. And this week, as I look to put up some hay and to begin preserving things on the farm, I want to talk about storage crops and just what it means to have such beautiful garlic, both for seed and culinary uses, that is going to to turn into your food and nutrient density for this year to come. Now, for those of you that aren't thinking about planting garlic, culinary garlic from Sundry's Farm is going to be the perfect addition to your storage pantry. And with these incredible soft neck varietals, you have storage up to a year. The hard necks are going to store through the end of this year and be incredible. But this is your chance to buy garlic for the rest of the year from a farm with incredible practices. They aren't using synthetic fertilizers and are instead using these nourishing fish emulsions and kelp to bring fertility back into the soil and nutrients into this incredible garlic. It has been hand grown. That means that hands have touched this garlic at least eight times by the time it makes it to your doorstep. And what this gives you is some of the most nutrient-dense garlic that is rich in phytochemicals and rich in story, and most importantly, perhaps, is that it is incredibly rich in flavor. This is going to add both all of the awesome properties of garlic, but also the awesome flavor that you didn't even know existed in some of these beautiful varietals like Enchilium Red and Nootka Rose and Carpathian and is going to flavor your dishes hopefully for the year to come. And so while we might not think about buying garlic for the year, but we do think about maybe canning tomatoes or picking up a cow share, I think that this can be yet another place where we can add a little bit of intention in our storage of our foodstuffs and Sundry's Farm is bringing you what I know because I've had the pleasure of eating and touching and smelling this beautiful garlic is the best garlic that money can buy. For those of you that are thinking about seed garlic, this is big cloved garlic, which makes it easy on the culinary side and is also going to produce more gigantic cloved garlic on the growing side for all of your garlic needs. And you will have a beautiful crop of garlic next year that you can then propagate from. And these cloves have been selected to be jumbo size to make them easy to peel and use in the kitchen and easy to make more clones of jumbo sized garlic in your garden that you can then use as seed garlic the next year. So you cannot go wrong with Sundry's Farm Garlic. And as you think about preserving things for the year and all of your storage crops, I want you to consider buying a year's worth of garlic from Sundry's Farm. All you have to do is go to sundriesfarm.com. That's S-U-N-D-R-I-E-S-F-A-R-M.com to order both seed and culinary garlic 
both hard neck and soft neck varietals with shipping happening now. There's no code needed. You just have to be hungry and ready to store and plant some garlic. That's sundriesfarm.com. And I am just so grateful for their support of this podcast. It is such a pleasure to have this symbiotic relationship. Check out Sundries Farm. This is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast. I'm Ed Robertson. This is a special live episode that was recorded in late June 2023 at the first ever Old Salt Festival, which was held on the Mannix Family Ranch in Helmville, Montana. The Old Salt Festival is a three-day celebration of ranching, land stewardship, and wild places that features live Western music, wood-fired cooking, products from some of the West's most renowned artisans, readings and interviews with Western authors and poets, and in-depth discussions about conservation and land stewardship. This year's festival was a resounding success, so I'm thrilled to share one of the many conversations with you here. The episode is a panel discussion titled Rebuilding a Resilient Regional Meat Supply Chain, featuring several of the West's leading voices in sustainable meat production and regenerative agriculture. In order of their appearance in the episode, you'll hear from Cole Mannix, president of the Old Salt Co-op, Kate Cavanaugh, owner of Western Daughters Butcher Shop and the host of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, Dan Miller, founder of Steward, and Wyatt Nelson, president of Wild West Local Foods. As you'll hear, each panelist is deeply immersed in a different aspect of the meat production supply chain, and each of them brings a unique and wise perspective to the challenges facing producers and small businesses involved in meat production. Many of you already know, but the Old Salt Festival is part of the Old Salt Co-op, a new purpose-driven company that, quote, provides meat raised with integrity from Montana landscapes its customers know and care about. The Old Salt Co-op is working to rebuild the meat business in Montana, creating a sustainable business model that's beneficial to local ranchers, local customers, and local economies, all while responsibly and effectively stewarding the lands that support agriculture. Rebuilding Montana's meat supply chain is no small feat, but with smart, purpose-driven people like Cole, Kate, Dan, and Wyatt working to find solutions, I think you'll be both inspired and encouraged. A huge thanks to Cole and the Old Salt team for inviting me to the festival, and a huge thanks to the Mannix family for sharing their stunning ranch with all of us. Thanks to Cole, Kate, Dan, and Wyatt for sharing their wisdom, and last but definitely not least, thanks to the one and only, always hilarious, always energetic, Bex Frucht for the amazing intro. Hope you enjoy. really excited to bring my buddy Ed Roberson back to the Range Revolution stage. He's the visionary and, and charming Southern voice behind the Mountain and Prairie podcast, which I'm guessing a lot of y'all get to listen to. It's such a cool community. There's a book club and we really need to give him some energy because by choice, he's into strenuous living, you know? This is, he's a real fanboy for Teddy Roosevelt. And so he may have climbed a mountain or some other craziness this morning. So we need to bring him some energy because Lord knows what he's been up to. Um, and I just want to say that like Mountain and Prairie, I think has been instrumental in bringing this community of folks together. And so I think it's such a lovely partnership to have Ed here with the Old Salt 
Festival for the first ever one. So y'all give a warm, warm welcome to Ed Roberson. And maybe a roundhouse kick, because he's really into roadhouse. Yeah, it's round. It's round. It's like this. (laughs) Ed Roberson. Thank you, Bex, as usual. I need to hire you to follow me around in day-to-day life. Um, We've got a great panel here. And selfishly, when I think about these things, it's always a relief to be on a panel with a bunch of really smart people because it's, once again, all I have to do is just kind of get out of the way. Um, But I I wanted, uh, we're recording this and it'll go out on my podcast. And so before we start, I thought in the, you know, because it's going to be recorded, people are going to be listening without the audio, without the visual. We're just going to get everybody to do a brief intro, who they are, what they do, so people can recognize the voices, and then I'll start pestering you with questions. So, Mr. Mannix, you're first. All right. Thanks, Ed. I'm Cole Mannix. I grew up here, and I live in Helena. And uh, I'm, I grew up here on the, my family's ranch, uh, where we're recording the, the podcast, and uh Live in Helena, and and today operate Old Salt Co-op with a whole bunch of friends and partners, trying to regionalize our our meat in Montana. My name is Kate Cavanaugh, and I own Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver, Colorado, where we've been operating for the last almost eleven years, and support uh, farmers and ranchers that are that have regenerative practices along the Front Range. I also operate the Mind Body and Soil podcast, and I do a tiny bit of farming myself. And I'm Dan Miller, the founder of Steward, which is a online financing platform for regenerative agriculture. Capital is really hard to come by for every producer, particularly regenerative producers. So the goal of our business is to take the capital from the people who care about this work and get it in the hands of the producers. And so we're working with Old Salt and lots of great companies around the country. Great. Thank you so much. It was interesting yesterday when I was listening to Cole's dad read those letters um, from from Cole's ancestors and thinking about the title of this particular session. It's Rebuilding a Resilient Regional Meat Supply Chain. And thinking about that back in the 1800s, I feel like it was definitely resilient and it was a lot more regional than what we've got now in 2023, which is kind of wild to think about. And so, Cole, I was wondering just to start it out, you know, you're the kind of guy who decides he wants to start a music festival on his family ranch <laughs> and bring in thousands of people. And so I wanted to really hear what was the the tipping point when you decided we need to start Old Salt Co-op. We need to bring people together. What was the both the challenge and the main opportunity that you saw? And here's Wyatt, who's also joining joining us. Ed, are you interested especially in the festival itself? No, 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 in the actual meat co-op, because I feel like you've been up here giving so much credit to everybody else and highlighting all these other great people. Now I'm going to force you to talk about yourself and your meat business and what is behind all of this wonderful festival that we're enjoying. Well, we have lots of challenges, and there's not one thing that needs to be rebuilt in terms of rebuilding local infrastructure for buying products from local producers Pretty much every component of the supply chain needs to be rebuilt. Uh, one, for example, that my family was experiencing was processing, but it's also a bandwidth question. You're, every ranch and farm that is trying to run their own website and trying to run their own social media and trying to do you know pack orders in the freezers just before they go out to change water, they struggle with questions of, okay, do we have the bandwidth and the skill set internally to grow? They're also running up, in in terms of my own family's case, we have a wonderful meat processor in Superior, but we've kind of exceeded their capacity. And yet we don't have the funds 
or the scale, frankly, to invest in our own facility by, by ourselves. And so we banded together uh, the JBRL ranches, the LF ranch, Seaman Livestock Company with a few core producer partners, but we also brought in Andrew Mace on the culinary and marketing side, who's prepared your hog, the hog meal and has been behind almost all, you know, so much of the thought of that went into the cooking here. Ross Eikenberry on the, on the side of digital marketing and understanding e-commerce. And we had to put a whole bunch of skill sets together. And the idea was just to work together with a group of producers, but a group of all the the marketing and processing infrastructure that's required. Uh, And then the, Ultimately, more than processing, more than anything else, in my mind, it's we need to be able to connect with customers that will buy their meat some other way than they are used to buying it. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you connect with people? And I don't think, you know, there's not one way. I don't really have a lot of faith in the ability of a label or a certification to, commu- to communicate a lot of value. I think the most real relationships and trust are built in person. And so it's one of the reasons for this event. It's one of the reasons we, we are operating in a restaurant with another one on the way. It's doing some catering. It's just trying to have authentic connections where people, there's some, something other than an anonymous food. Well, and just going down the line here, Kate, you know, so much of your career has been that personal connection with your customer. And you, you know, at Western Daughters in Denver, and then you've also seen it from the, the producer side of things. And so when you hear Cole's idea and the idea of Old Salt and all these great people that are here together, given your experience interacting with the customer for so many years, building up a business, what do you see as some of the, maybe the top two main challenges? Because we've got a financing expert, we've got a distribution expert, you're kind of got a, a foot in all the different p- pools. What do you see as a, as a main roadblock? You know, I think it's hard to reduce it to one single thing. And this is actually a lot of what I focused my work on is how we can look at things from the complex space that they are, that it's not one single thing that it is that is broken. It's not one single hurdle. And I think what I see right now is that you have three main shareholders in the food supply system as we're talking about it here. You have consumers you have producers, ranchers, and farmers, and then you have kind of a catch-all of third parties. These are going to be slaughterhouses, butchers, aggregators, restaurants that are helping to support that supply chain. And I think that one of the biggest hurdles that we face right now is that each one of those shareholders is working on on very slim margins, as it were. It's a little bit harder to to couch for the consumer, but I think that you have an average of 2.5% margins across ranching in the United States, which means that you are just one disaster away from this tanking your operation or or being really difficult. Uh, on the, the aggregators and butcher shop, they're working on a similar margin structure. It is ultra slim. And so it's like driving a car really fast down a very small highway when you're looking at this. And then I think you have a consumer that largely is facing a lot of increasing costs and hurdles to getting better food. 
And so I think the question then becomes, that second hurdle then becomes, how do we change the story that we're telling ourselves? And how do we begin to build this sort of cooperative ecosystem, maybe that mirrors the soil food web within those three shareholders? And I actually think that when you look at what you're doing with Old Salt, you're touching something really important, which is putting culture back in agriculture, that we have lost so much of this community basis of knowing one another, of shaking one another's hands, of having that relationship with where our food comes from, with the people that grow our food, and sort of restoring this idea of story as a component of nutrient density. And I think about this a lot, right? Like, you know, you just heard Diana get up here and talk about some of the nutrient deficiencies that we face. And I think one of those is story and where our food comes from and knowing those people and relationship. Kate is so smart. And if you want more of that, listen to her podcast. She's a lot smarter than me and you'll learn a lot more. Dan, you know, when we hear these numbers that Kate mentioned, these very slim margins, and you're in the business of, of fi- helping finance, and this is not you know, two and a half percent margin. We're not talking Silicon Valley startups here. So what attracted you to get into the, the business of trying to help finance regenerative agriculture? I think the the consumer interest that everyone sees that everyone's here for has been apparent. You know, there's a lot more people looking to buy different product. They want to build those direct customer relationships, but then you talk to the producers and they have no access to capital. So as much as consumer demand can pull it without the resources you need for capital, it's not going to fit. And so it's through actually a chef I met uh, named Spike Jurdy from Woodbury Kitchen sourced from over 150 farmers in the mid Atlantic watershed, single-handedly created his own economy of purchasing And yet all the producers who he was celebrating still didn't have access to funding. And that's because the funding is commoditized. There's no relationship in the funding. People don't think about a personal connection with their capital. They just go to a bank and go to wherever. And so by giving people the chance to fund these projects, they can have their values with it. So maybe the cost of capital isn't as high it would have been through a traditional source, or they're more willing to adjust during issues that happen with any loan. And then the old salt model and where I think the margins are is right now there's lots of different people with different margins that don't have integrated systems. And if you integrate those systems all the way through producer and employee owned slaughter processing end market and value add, you now can share that margin with the whole network. And until there's transparency and margin going to all the players in a network, you're not going to see that type of resilience. But I think these types of models and we're working with flour mills and other intermediate processors even though processing is normally not considered a good business, it's actually the meeting point, a nexus between consumers and producers. And so we view it as we need to finance this infrastructure. We have thousands of people on our platform and all the types of people here who want to put their money towards these types of things. And if people are funding these types of projects and buying from these types of producers, it creates its own microeconomic cycle. So similar to regional supply chains, it's it's distributed capital. You're not reliant on a centralized system. So it was, it was out of seeing the, the consumer interest not being met with the change in funding. And now I just realized that it's a, it completely changes the dynamic when you have a direct relationship with your capital, just like when you have a direct relationship with your consumer. And so we're building those networks, we're telling stories, and people are earning a return, but they're doing it because they care and they want to see more of these businesses prosper. Thank you for that. Um, Wyatt, Two questions for you. One, quickly introduce yourself. Tell us, tell everybody what you do. And then 
you're deep in the distribution world. Oh, and I like your hat. My buddy's Matt Skoglin. <laughs> Thank you. I like <laughs> it too. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, if you could just talk a bit about kind of the challenges, when, when you wake up in the morning, you think about, all right, there are going to be some challenges come my way this day, today. What are, what are those? What are you dealing with on a daily basis that kind of is a road, roadblocks to a, a better, more sustainable system from the distribution side of things? Uh, my name is Wyatt Nelson. I'm, I'm a local distributor here in Montana. I've been working with local farms and ranches for the last um, 10 to 15 years. And when I wake up in the morning, um, yeah, there are plenty of obstacles every single day that I wake up in the morning. Um, going back to a lot of points of the margin and the slim margin and going back to Old Salt and, and how it's a co-op and how everybody's communicating I've discovered that it's really important for someone like myself to know what everyone does in that chain and can open up the line of communication so that we can all talk to each other and make sure that we are meeting our margins um, along the way. And not a lot of distributors um, that I know of have that open line of communication from the ranch all the way to the retail or the restaurant. And it's really important that we all work together and communicate along the way so that we are all successful, so that we can all grow together. Because if any of us drop out of the communication or drop out of this chain, the whole thing falls apart, right? So that is an obstacle that I deal with every single day um, and try to communicate to the whole group. Um, Every time I'm talking to new ranchers, new farmers, um, just that whole business model on how I think that is how it needs to work. Um, and this is kind of for everybody and feel free uh, if my questions are insufficient <laughs> for, for you guys to ask each other questions. Cause there, there's so much here when you hear these stories and everybody here understands what we're talking about. And I think if you found an average person on the street and you told them what you do and the, the, these challenges, they would agree, well, that's, that's not great, but how do you, how do you go about capturing people's attention? You know, I think Kate does it great in her podcast, Cole, you know, everything we're doing here is, is great for that to, to get it out into the world to the average person who just goes to the grocery store and wants to buy some meat. But I feel like the ultimate challenge today, we've just got this Niagara falls of information, good, bad, everything. There's a lot of really good stuff, but it's too much. And, And my brain just can't process it all. And so sometimes even knowing what I know about everything y'all do, it's not easy to make a decision. So when you're thinking about the end consumer and anybody's welcome to answer this, how how do you capture their attention and make them care? Because I feel like that's kind of the trick. Good question. I would love to know that. (laughs) Uh, I, I think our, I mean, I think a lot of us feel overloaded by information and I think some, a lot of times brands are trying to catch attention by making huge claims about the way they can impact the world. <laughs> and I think that's overpromising. I think a lot of times regenerative agriculture can overpromise because oftentimes being productive while maintaining the health of a landscape, especially in the West, is itself a really good achievement. And without being too bombastic about the difference we're making in the world, the only thing I know is it's going to, I think it just only can happen gradually. People have to be in the right place at a place in their lives where they're trying to find what's fundamental, trying to find, sort out the noise. They're trying to, you know, get down to the essence. Like for them, what is a meaningful life? 
what am I, how am I going to get the, the crap out of our cupboards and mostly have the, the essentials and we'll be healthier and our kids will be better that way? How do I get the crap out of my mind, you know, in social media or whatever? And how do I just have a, a, a manageable life where I, I feel like the main components in my life, you know, as much as possible, the way we're using energy, as much as possible, the way I'm feeding my family, um, you know, movement. <laughs> it's just p- people who are, who are, I think, are hungry, by and large, to cut through the noise because there's so much of it. And I think we just have to be patient with that transition, try to have authentic experiences and interaction. And from the, from the food side, I do not think we should overpromise about our products. It's just, you know, in a lot of ways, ranching is not sexy at all. You're just trying to, you're trying to make sure enough value gets to each part of the supply chain. We can all make a good enough living, the resources well cared for, and it still winds up being reasonable, you know, affordable for the customer. And I, I'll just end by saying I'm unapologetic about the price of meat. It's the best nutrition per, per ounce, per unit, that we have, but the possible exception of oysters, which I think is meat anyway. <laughs> I, I want to add a little bit to this, that I think that there, there are two main core values that I really see when we're trying to capture attention, and I think that's curiosity and connection. And I think that our connection to our food is something that is encoded in what it is to be human, that throughout most of human history, we have been hunters, we have been gatherers. A lot of our days have been spent around the collection and processing of food. And I think that there are a lot of people that are experiencing a feeling that something in their life is is missing. And I think some of that is connection, not just to our food, but to place through our food, to be a part of an ecosystem, even if you're in an urban environment, to have a connection to where your food comes from, because essentially we are made out of place. All the nutrients in the soil and the relationships between the grasses and the sun and the soil food web and the ruminant that's grazing them is flowing through us to create our bodies and have this elegant conversation with our biology. And I think that we're missing that connection point and you can leverage curiosity. And I think in a world where there is absolutely too much information, this waterfall of information to get a little bit curious about process, about where our food or where anything comes from, honestly, and to leverage that to then dive into having this connection with a, a local farm, a local ranch, a butcher shop, whatever that is, can be pretty powerful. And, and, and I think it's very personal, and we're still at the early days of consumers becoming aware. I mean, I come from sixth generation of farmers in Eastern Shore, Maryland, but I grew up in Washington, D.C. My mom left the farm, and so for me, it was trying to reconnect with that history and understand the landscape and the Chesapeake Bay and how to restore it. And in an effort to find those producers doing that, then brought the opportunity to support them. And so I think right now in everyone's journey, it's, it's, they have to go a lot of different ways. They have to learn a lot on their own. They have to find it themselves. And I think the next step is getting the processing infrastructure, getting the market to a scale where it can deliver product reliably at real volumes at wholesale to really put it in front of people. Because it is hard to buy these types of products these days. You do have to go out of your way. And so realistically, we're still at the early days, I think, of the consumer shift. But generationally, people younger than me, I mean really are thoughtful about purchasing and using their purchasing power to affect change. And I think that's what people need to realize. 
the res- their resources are being used in the system to push the conventional model. If they pull their resources out and direct those purchasing power funding projects within their own power, they can affect that change. And so I think each person individually has to take their own action. And that's now leading to fundamental shifts where even multinational corporations are realizing they need to get on it. That's a separate question of how do you keep them out of it. But there's definitely an awareness that the consumer demand is fundamentally changed. I'll add to that. Um, what what I've noticed um, in Montana and moving around Montana with our with my customers is a lot of the consumers in restaurants and retail they assume that if they're eating beef in Montana that they're eating Montana beef. And you drive across this state and you see beef all over the place. And you go into a restaurant, there's beef on the plate. You would think it would be smart that the beef from that neighborhood would be on your plate. Um, So for me, it's about educating um, consumers, even in my own community, even all you all talking to your communities and talking about getting people to go in and and eat in a restaurant and say, where is this product from? Where is this beef from? I want to support local beef. Because if we're doing that, then we're supporting our local farms and ranches um, then we're not just assuming that we're just supporting the beef industry around the world. We're supporting our local beef industry. And I try to open that line of communication with my customers so that they start to ask those questions, even if they're not buying from me. Cole, this would, uh, I'd love to get you to start out on this one. Um, in a previous life, I was in the real estate business and then I shifted over into the conservation world and working mostly with farmers on the lower Arkansas River in Colorado. And, you know, when I was selling ranches or when I was doing uh, farming conservation, you hear all these statistics about the demographics of the, the average agricultural producer. And then you hear all the statistics about what a tight business it is and what a challenging business it is. And there are a lot of times where uh, the younger generation comes around. They're like, "Man, this is this is tough. I, I don't. I want to go to a city. I want to. I don't know why, but I want to. I'll go sit in a cubicle instead of doing this." And then when you think about this beautiful place where we are, it's the, it's the farmers and ranchers and the stewards of the land that keep these landscapes intact and keep them from being split up and turned into these tiny ranchettes. And so, Cole, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about kind of this particular valley and the work that you and all your neighbors have done. Because in our conversations preparing for this, you talked about, you know, all the families here. Some of them do, you know, specific regenerative practices. Some of them are more traditional ranchers. But you're all devoted to keeping your business going so that you can keep this landscape intact. I'd love to hear more about that because it's that's I feel like when we're looking at it right now and thinking that, this is at risk if the business of ranching doesn't work. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, I would say that there's just no bright line between what's a regenerative practice and what's not a regenerative practice. And there are a tremendous number of ranches in this valley that endure because they are respectful and they think about they do think about the long term. And you know, they're not trying to maximize in the short term. Like I said yesterday on a, on a separate panel, it's not just agriculture in this value, but it's a whole bunch of other nonprofit partnerships um, that go into keeping it all intact. But I think our values as, as a society, um, it's, you can't really attribute to this to any one thing, but our values have been we want consistent, convenient, and inexpensive food. 
And at the end of the day, that will drive stewardship out because there's more values than, than just the price and the convenience that are important. And I think that's back to connection. I think one of the reasons why there's so many of my cousins and brothers and sisters that have want to come back and find a place at the ranch, it's because my aunts and uncles and mom and dad started this local beef program, which still is not, it's not at all the majority of, of the, the majority of the livestock we sell is still on the commodity market. Let's say 20 to 30% of our business is local, but just their bravery, you know, 15 years ago of, okay, we'll start selling at the good food store. We'll start selling at the farmer's market. It was an avenue for customers to all of a sudden we had all of us kids interaction with the customer. We started to be connected in a way we had never been to people who had some interest, some questions about the way we were raising it. it all of a sudden it felt like it mattered. And so I, I think that it's back to, you know, I think what Kate was talking about with connection, connecting with our customers in an authentic way is not any different than connecting with our, we've, we've been very fortunate. The ranchers put in a little pool of money to start up. Um, they don't to have a ton of cash to risk, especially on something hard as, as hard as meat. And a community of like 20 different high net worth investors who they had some capital. They've got and invested in you know many things, but they were looking to put it to work more locally. And they, they knew that we weren't going to give them the best return. We'd be lucky to give them a return. But they, they were investing for many intangible reasons. They're, they're pretty tangible reasons, but they're just not mon- they're just not they don't show up on a spreadsheet. Well, and, and so that connect I just see that connection with investors, with customers, with your distributor is it's all the same connection. And Cole's humble because an idea they're they're great ideas, but there are what they're investing in are the people behind the ideas. Those those types that you're talking about, they they can invest their money wherever they want. And you know, if I told them the exact same thing you said and ask them for money, they'd say, "Hit the road. You don't know what you're doing." But it's you and your team, you know. And so I think, I think they give sweet. it to you. <laughs> No, I don't think so. And, and I wanted to touch on the, you know, people not taking over the family farm. So probably half of the farmers we've funded, about 100 now, aren't from non-farm backgrounds. And so there are a lot of people from non-farm backgrounds who want to get into this because of the meaning, because of the interest, because of the connection. And then there are people in the new generation of family farms who want to do it a different way. So I think there's very little demand in taking over existing conventional operations as they are today because it's not fun and the margins are terrible and the work maybe isn't as rewarding. But we worked with a farmer who grew up on a dairy in Wisconsin, milked 24 hours a day, 1,000 cows, mega dairy. He moved to Southern Oregon, started making his own milk, started making his own cheese, and now does award-winning cheese. And he just wanted to do it in his own way with craft, with care. And so I, I do think... There is demand for people to get into agriculture. It just needs to be a different type. Um, yeah, I'll support that too. Um, I've, I've met a lot of um, young ranchers who have come back who have left and gone and lived in the cities, and, and they've come back with new ideas and have been educated in different areas that they've realized are really important for modern agriculture. Um, coming back with a marketing degree and working in a city and, and selling retail that may not be food, but knowing that coming back and working with the ranch, that that is something important that needs to be integrated into your your sales if you're going to sell locally or if you're going to grow. So I think there's a lot more opportunity that I'm seeing with um, these young folks coming back to their ranches with these big, brilliant ideas that are going to be really helpful to continue to grow this industry. 
that speaks to what David James Duncan has been talking about and is one of the big themes of Sunhouse is we need a change of consciousness. And it's interesting how that fiction lines up exactly with on the ground work that's happening. Kate. I'll be quick. I just, I just think that it's worth adding, you know, Wes Jackson has this idea of homecoming and what it means to come back to the, the, the family ranch, the family farm. But I think that applies too for first generation farmers. I'm a first generation farmer and it's coming home to the idea of, of growing food, of stewardship. And I think that one of the things that I want to see more of is connection of skill sets that I think that there are a lot of first generation farmers that are wanting for mentorship that are wanting for that older generation to help them come in. And they also have a lot to add in the ideas that they're bringing to the table, the idea of coming back and making artisanal cheese from this dairy background. And so integrating that and having a sort of intergenerational skill set. And I think that these skills are vital, right? The 44,000 generations of hunters in human history. And it's amazing how quickly we can lose these skills, whether it's hunting or it's, it's more of an agricultural setting. And so transmission of skills has to be an important part of homecoming. Well, Kate, while you had the mic, I'd love to hear more about kind of what you're seeing on the ground on the retail side of things, because it's, you know, I think when you have these great conversations and, and people are generally being, you know, very, very kind of showing the, the best side of things, I think that can not give an accurate picture of how hard the work is and some of the realities of just dollars and cents. And so I think that's important. I think in this world of Instagram, <laughs> people, people just think that it's out riding horses and doing this in these beautiful landscapes. But at the end of the day, it's an extremely tough business with entrenched status quo players. It's tough. So, Kate, I'd love a kind of a clear-eyed view of of what you're seeing and then maybe thoughts from everybody about little steps that can be taken to change it. And like Cole has said over and over, it's not going to happen overnight. But but can you just kind of give us a, what you're dealing with now? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been running my butcher shop for almost 11 years, and my husband and I have been sitting down and talking about whether or not it's economically viable at this point. And I'll, I'll tell you what I tell people, which is what keeps me up at night is that I'm paying farmers and ranchers a lot better than most people. And it's still not enough. Their margins aren't enough. I'm paying our employees better than a lot of people. And it's still not enough for them to have the quality of life that they deserve in the city. And at the end of the day, that means that we don't quite have enough left over to operate our shop. And so about 52 cents of every dollar you spend at Western Daughters goes back to a farmer or a rancher. About 30 cents of every dollar goes back to our employees. And what's left over just isn't enough for us to run the ins and outs of the business. And I think that I'm not alone in facing some of these challenges. And what we've been talking about is you have this squeeze in those three shareholders that I was talking about. And how do we get to a place where we have financial regeneration and where we have regeneration, I think, of the human component, that we don't have burnout happening on farmer side or butcher side or distributor side, that we're all putting a lot into this. And yeah, what was the what was the next little bit of question on that? And then kind of on the upside, you know, what needs to happen, you know, what needs to happen to make it more viable? I mean, like, like I know it's a million things, but if say there's one or two things that could shift that would help you. 
I think there's a couple of things, and I think what you said is really important, that we have to communicate at every level. And I think that there's going to be some really beautiful models that we can follow of sort of small-scale vertical integration within a single business. But then I think there has to be this layering and stacking of vertical functions between farmers, processors, distributors, where there has to be that really clear line that a, a rising tide is going to lift all ships. And that component of cooperation and transparency. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that in sharing this bit of transparency, it helps us address where some of these pinch points are in a more honest way. And I think a lot of us in regenerative, whatever you want to call it, communities talk a lot about transparency on sourcing or what animals are eating. But I think that should also apply to transparency on how farmers and ranchers are being paid and where those hardships are. And I think that, you know, one other component that I have to say here is that when I look at the 11 year history of Western Daughters, while it hasn't been financially successful, you know, we have given $6 million back to farmers and ranchers in 11 years. Uh, you know, it's 2,000 acres under regenerative management that has built topsoil in the West and really bolstered rural economies. And to me, that is massive amount of success just not quite in the way that we couch it in today's, in today's terms. You describe the impact, you know, not just as your profit. And that's really why I began from restaurant side. It was like this restaurant had, had $20 million of purchasing of local food and millions of dollars of payroll that in and of itself is successful. And so if each part of the chain has to be its own profit center, it becomes complicated. But if you realize that each part is bringing value down the value chain, then there's a way to integrate it. So I think it is putting those pieces together and understanding that not every part needs to be extremely profitable. It's about bringing value back to producers and every employee along that supply chain working. I mean, for me, I'm biased. I think the biggest challenge is capital. I mean, that's the point of our business, the point of our platform. I don't meet any regenerative producer who has enough access to capital or even close to it. We're working with somebody now who has over $20 million of sales millions of dollars of unleveraged assets still can't get conventional financing. So it doesn't matter how successful you are, you're not well supported. And until you're well supported as a business in the sector, it's barely making it work. And that's that can only stay along for so long. While I've got Cole captive audience, he's so humble he won't ever really brag about anything he's doing. But I, I was catching up with Cole uh before this festival and I, I asked I said, so how's everything going? And he, I didn't even tell you this, you went into this telling me everything that was going, but it, it didn't have anything to do with the festival. It was all about the, the all the, the, the money you're raising and all the different things you're putting into place. And I was thinking that is a focused, hardworking guy. He's got thousand people showing up at his ranch and he's thinking about plenty of other things than that. And so I'm going to force you to talk about what's all the co-op. What are you like, what are you working on right now? What is, what are you raising money for? What can we expect if things go as you hope you know, over the eighteen month next eighteen months for old salt and don't be humble well uh, you know one of the biggest things we're doing right now is is we're building infrastructure for on the processing side so we have a construction project for a slaughter facility we have a construction project to modify our cut and wrap facility both to get to USDA inspection we purchased a restaurant that, that we are working to um, 
renovate into a butcher shop and 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 charcoal fire grill and helena once again that's a meant to be a relationship builder and so it's trying to get those construction projects um financed and then just designed what exactly are we doing with work with with, working with all the contractors it's trying to plan to have the human capital that we're going to need when those are ready so that we have a team that can process and we're we've been very fortunate to have a good core group steward as a bank has been irreplaceable. If we would not have found Stewart, we would not be here today. So it does take capital. Our next stage, though, is those facilities have to be busy. You're going to take out that kind of debt. You have your payments. They have to have throughput, and it takes time to build a market. And so we're going to rely on also processing for other ranches and farms that are trying to sell locally. We're going to rely on partnerships with people like Wyatt, who they know the, they, they know the customer from the perspective of a restaurant client. They know how to, they know the logistics of, you know, getting full loaded trucks to where, the, you know, where they need to go. They know how to receive orders and then deliver on those orders. And then pl- and planning on the supply chain for a wholesale client is so much different than planning it for a gradually growing direct-to-consumer market. It's just a different scale of risk. I think in 18 months, hopefully before that, we'll be in the black. That would be great. Maybe we have, we'll have held another festival. I have no idea. Yes, um, I think I think there's a demand for that. No, no question. Uh, within, eight, <laughs> within eighteen months, you'll be able to take an animal all the way through slaughter processing to selling at a restaurant without That's anyone right. else in between. That's right. You know, I I think the five year trajectory of things could work. We could sell several thousand head. Um, it's not huge, but on the scale of things, but it would be meaningful change. Several thousand head of Montana livestock that weren't staying in the state will be staying in the state, and people that eat that meat will have more connection to the landscapes they came from. That would be a, a big deal. Could Maybe we employ 50 people. That's impact that matters, right? I think in 18 months we could have that kind of just livelihoods for more people in the, in, in the system working in it and giving their passion, their time, and their resources to it. When I think about the, the crowd here, I don't think anybody here needs to be converted to this way of thinking. I think everybody is pretty much of the – you know, in agreement um, and, and has a good understanding of all these issues. But I think the the power of a group like this, you know, we've got all these people, if everybody went out and did something, took some action, and we've got producers here, we've got people like me who live in a city of 500,000 people, a wide range of, pe- of, of people here who are bought in and who can make a difference. And I always want my podcast or anything I do to be actionable, not just talking in, in circles. And so, I'd love to hear from everybody, almost like a homework assignment for the people in the audience um, who are bought in, who want to do good, who are here for a lot more than just the music. What's one simple thing that people could do in your in y'all's mind that would help get the momentum going a little bit further in the right direction? And anybody can jump in. Um, next time you go shopping, buy something local, buy local beef. But- so here's a question about that. And, I, and I'm, again, I'm so far on the outside. Like I was at a conference down in Santa Fe and, and I, it blew my mind that, and again, I'm, this shows my ignorance, but that's what I do on the podcast to show how dumb I am that it, you could, that there was legislation. If you find a, a uh, steak in the grocery store and it says made in the USA, it could, could, could have come from Brazil and they just processed it and it processed part of it in the U S. So for somebody who, how do you know? I mean, how are you not get tricked by these people? Because they're master trickers. 
Um, I would say when, you know, ask for the um, head of the butcher department in your grocery store or in your meat department, your butcher shop, and ask them. And if they don't know, then don't buy the product. I, I would say most local products that I've seen in our local grocery stores, they'll give you the address of where they are. They'll give you contact information. And typically you can pick up the phone and call the farmer ranch and they answer. And they're real people and they'll tell you all about it. Um, for us, we're actually about to close the financing on Old Salt Slaughter and Processing Facility. So in about two weeks, Old Salt will send an email asking you all if you want to help fund the infrastructure they need to be successful. And so that's about as tangible as it gets. Yeah, that's great. I'd say to make a personal connection. Go shake the hand of a local farmer or a rancher. Usually they're closer than you think. And go walk out on that land and make a connection to your ecosystem too because I think that ties you in both to community in in our human community and community within our ecosystem. Heck yeah. Round of applause for that, Kate. Um, I would just say uh, I have no business speaking up here with all the people I can see in the audience who have a lot more exp- well, I think I guess my point is go meet somebody at this festival it is an incredible there's an incredible group of people here gathered which I'm so grateful for and they're you're all working on incredibly interesting things so go meet something you, somebody you don't already know and it'll really move you know what we what we feed grows and whether we're feeding our time or our other resources like financial it will grow. And so um, go go use the connections with other people that you make at the festival um, and bring it forward in your own work. Um, and then I would say listen to Ed Roberson's podcast, Mountain and Prairie. It's another great way to network. No, I'd say listen to Kate's podcast. <laughs> um, he didn't pay me for that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I mean, not that I'm an expert, but I really think having conversations with people you know, I mean, I, the podcast is a very self-selfish thing because I, I don't want to be messing up the world and I don't want to, I want to do the right thing. But a lot of it has been education for me and having Cole and Kate on the podcast and them answer my questions and teach me as people that I trust, it has changed my behavior. And so I think being able to patiently explain to people you know and love uh, in a way that's not confrontational, like a lot of the media is these days. I mean, I think there's a lot of power in that word of mouth. We're bumping up on time now, but we're not going to do Q&A because one of the great things about this festival is all these folks are going to be milling about. You can go and have a real conversation with them. But we're going to wrap it up now. But thank you all so much for your interest. Thank you to everybody in the crowd for everything you're doing. Um, it's so inspiring to be here, and I just really appreciate it. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I know your time is valuable, so it means the world that you spend it listening. If you want to support the podcast and help it to continue to spread and grow, there are a few ways you can help. Number one, pass it along to a friend or share it on social media. Word of mouth recommendations are the most powerful way for ideas to spread, so I'd love it if you could share the podcast with a few pals who might enjoy it. Number two, you go to Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star review. Good reviews encourage the Apple overlords to suggest the podcast to others. So there's a link in the notes if you'd be so kind as to give it five stars. Number three, you can support the podcast financially via Patreon. And there are exclusive benefits for those who do, including a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter, Mountain and Prairie stickers, live and recorded video chats with podcast guests, and much more. Number four, 
I've also got two emails that I send out. The first is my weekly email called Good News from the American West, which I send out every Wednesday. It's only positive news, something we can all use a little more of these days. And my other email is my bi-monthly book recommendations email. One email every other month with five, six, seven, or eight books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The thousands of people on both of these lists will vouch for me. No spam or other funny business. And number five, finally, check out my online store for Mountain and Prairie stickers, shirts, and coffee mugs. I've got some really cool designs from Western artists with more on the way. So head to mountainandprairie.com shop to check it all out. I'd love to connect with you. I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn. So look me up on either of those platforms by my name or through the links on my website. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.